So we come to Job chapter 9, reading the entirety of that chapter. God's holy and inspired word, the book of Job chapter 9, give your attention to the reading of God's word, Job 9, the entire chapter. Job 9. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know that it is so, but how can man be right with God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He removes mountains and they know it not, and when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. He made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me. And I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summon him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, my mouth would prove me perverse. I am blameless, but I know not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he... Then Who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into a pit and my clone clothes would abhor, will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him. 
for I am not so in myself. That's the, thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. So there's a general piece of scriptural wisdom that warns us not to be hasty to go to court. If someone has a quarrel with you, do your best to reconcile before trial. For once the court is in session, things get serious and the consequence is painful. Additionally, you cannot always be certain that your judicial system always works properly. Judges can be corrupt and witnesses bribed. And this is sound advice for us. For even though we should be thankful for our court system, it can still fall short in many ways. Nevertheless, despite the problems with the legal system, when the quarrel is hefty, when the charges are dire, you need the courts. To have your day in court can be one of the most important things. You need your name cleared. The false charges must be dropped. You require legal protection from one who wants to do you harm. To be denied access to the court can be a nightmare of the worst sort. And on top of all that Job has been suffering, this too burden has been laid upon him. Job has no court. No attorney will take his case, which leaves him shivering in fear. So Bildad just threw a hot fastball straight down the middle at Job. He charged Job with accusing God of perverting justice. Bildad asserted that God always repays the wicked and the righteous in kind. And so Job should stop his problematic mourning. He should be pure, and then God will fill Job's mouth with joy. Now, with such a sharp one-two punch of the retribution principle, you would expect an equal and opposite reaction. That Job would come out swinging, but not really. Instead, the first, his first line is one of agreement. He says, truly, I know it is so, or what you say is right. Job assents to Bildad what Bildad spoke, or at least to some part of it. But what is he concurring with? Well, most likely it is to the truth that God doesn't pervert justice and righteousness. For as soon as Job agrees, he adds a caveat. Job gives a yes, but, but there are wrinkles that complicate matters. As he says next, but how can man be vindicated with God? Interestingly, in this line, Job repeats a question that Eliphaz asked back in chapter 4, verse 17. And yet Job tweaks its meaning. Eliphaz used this question as a line to assert that humans can never be morally pure before God. Eliphaz's interest was in mankind's ultimate righteousness. Job, though, shifts the question to a legal one. What he means is, can man be vindicated in a trial with God? Job is not comparing his purity with God's in some abstract or absolute way. Rather, Job wants his innocence to be vindicated by God. Remember, the friends labeled Job as a sinner, and so he needs to be proven right, which would take a trial with God. 
Therefore, Job seeks a trial with God to be proven upright so that his cursed suffering, to show that his cursed suffering is not due to any sin of his. However, acquiring such a trial with God is not so easily accomplished. As he goes on, if man insisted on a court hearing, God would not answer him one time out of a thousand. For God is too wise and powerful. No one's ever challenged God in court and succeeded. Simply put, Job needs a trial, but one is not available to him. Now, Job's desire here is fascinating in light of the rest of the Old Testament. Generally, to be put on trial before God was an undesirable thing. It is a terrifying prospect, and so the saints often cry out not to be judged. That's what we sang in Psalm 143. Though there are numerous psalms where the upright psalmist, or saint, typically David, is wrongly accused by foes, and he pleads that the Lord would vindicate him according to his righteousness. The need for vindication requires a trial with God to pronounce a certain verdict. And so a court session with God is scary, but when vindication is on the line, it's worth the risk. Nevertheless, Job's situation differs a bit from what we find in the Psalms. For he next launches into a sort of hymn. He offers up a doxology to praise the power of the Almighty. Verses 5 through 10. Note how he says, The Lord moves mountains. He shakes the earth from its place, tottering on its pillars as if drunk. With a syllable, the Lord orders the sun not to rise. He seals up the stars to keep them from shining. God treads on the waves of the sea. He stretched out the heavens like a garment. The majestic constellations like Aldebaran, Orion, and Pleiades. God pinned these to the heavens as if metals on a shirt. Beyond searching and without number are the astounding marvels of God. Job here lauds the infinite greatness and surpassing transcendence of the Lord. And yet this hymn has a distinct tune. Moving mountains, darkening the sun, trampling on the chaotic sea, these undo creation. They actually picture the Lord as a divine warrior strutting forth in judgment. He states it explicitly in verse 5, he overturns them in his anger or wrath. Job highlights then not only the infinite and transcendent side of God, but his wrathful side, which further taps into the Old Testament. For in the Old Testament, when it came to be judged by God, there was actually two standards, two measuring rods. The first was by justice, and the second was called by wrath. To be judged by justice in the Old Testament was to be weighed as an individual for your own sins according to the law. However, to be judged by wrath was the indiscriminate fury of God that took out everyone and for corporate sin. And thus, Job pleaded in Chapter 10, he said, judge me, Lord, by justice, not by your wrath, 
lest you reduce me to nothing. You see, judgment by wrath closed off all prayer, it excluded any intercession, and it was carried out without mercy. Bildad insisted that God judged only by justice. Job replies, no, there's another manner of retribution, by wrath. And this is how God has positioned himself towards Job. For and, and if God has covered himself in a dark cloud of wrath, then the avenue towards vindication is shut down. Thus Job continues to despair that he will never get his day in court. If God passes by him, Job can't see him or presents him. And if you cannot find God, then how can you hold a trial? Plus, if God snatches away, you're unable to get it back. No one can say to God, what are you doing? There's no correcting God or getting him to reverse his actions. And the next line, the Lord doesn't turn back his wrath again. It says Rahab, that famous sea monster who was supported by an army of minions, well, Rahab and its soldiers, even they cower, even they cower and bow under God's wrath. Well, if it's so with Rahab, how much less can Job answer God? If by some chance Job did get a trial with God, he says his mouth would be as dumb. He couldn't choose the right words. Even being righteous, his tongue would trip over his teeth and he could only plead for mercy. Thus Job here is groaning under three impossibilities. One, he cannot sense God. And so he can't find him for a trial. Two, if he did get a court hearing, his words would fail him. He couldn't defend himself. Third, if in the trial God did answer, then Job would be undone and rejected. Job says he wouldn't even believe that the Lord is listening to him, for the wrath of God would reject Job's claim. His pains and his wounds would increase It says he wouldn't even be able to catch his breath as God would fill him with bitterness and poison. Before the fury of the Almighty, Job's agony would only multiply. His life would go weaker. The noise of God's glory would block out any words of Job, and he would be crushed deeper into nothing. You can feel Job's despair here. The distance between he and God is too great. He cannot cross it. And if he did, the wrath of God would bend and break him bitterly. Job, though, is not yet finished. But he continues to lament his lack of access to the court of vindication, verse 19. He says, if it was a contest of strength, surely God's too strong. If it was a matter of justice... Who can summon God? That is, you can't schedule God. He's unable to be subpoenaed. You can't simply put a trial on the calendar and expect God to show up on time. For he is not beholden to such a summons. Job does not have jurisdictional authority over God. Besides, Job is all mixed up on the inside as now he releases a series of more schizophrenic declarations. He says, if I'm in the right, 
my own mouth would condemn me. If I'm blameless, my mouth would prove me perverse. Here he holds out the possibility of him being upright and blameless. And yet, even so, if he took the stand, all his testimony would incriminate him. His self-defense before God would end up being a self-condemnation. But then, in the next verse, he makes a strong assertion, I am blameless. If I am upright, no, I'm certain, I am blameless. And yet, he says, I don't know. I loathe my life. On a teeter-totter of self-doubt and self-loathing, he tips between the certainty of innocence to the suspicion of guilt. Part of Job is assured of being upright, but if all he can do is plead for mercy before God, then doesn't this make him perverse, hypocritical? Job is held captive in his own head by a confident innocence and an apprehensive guilt. Two personalities argue inside of Job, you are blameless, no, you are guilty. In sheer weariness, Job then submits to ignorance and self-hatred. He can't take it anymore. But then he finds a modicum of rest in the realization that it's all the same. At the end of the day, there is no difference between the righteous and the wicked. For they all end up in the same place as God destroys them both. Death and destruction come to the upright as well as the wicked. And so it's the same. A disaster, a flood, a plague, they kill everyone suddenly. A hurricane doesn't make a distinction between who is right and wrong. Saints drowned as easily as the villain. God even basically mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The Lord also gives the earth into the hand of the wicked, and he covers the eyes of the judges. This is Job countering the position of his friends, that when they said that it always goes well for the godly and poorly for the wicked. But it's not too difficult to notice that the unrighteous often occupy all the positions of power. Power corrupts, and it can corrupt absolutely. This also responds to Eliphaz's remark that God only wounds in order to heal, that God only disciplines to restore in the end. But this is hardly the case always, for a plague equally ravages the innocent and saintly as if it was a game. And by these points, Job does give us a better read of life. Bildad and Eliphaz painted a clean picture of life. It goes well for the good and bad for the evil. And yet Job says, no, wait a minute. What about the pneumonia that killed the three-year-old? What about the cruel tyrant ruling for 50 years? And you know how blind judges can be to justice. Furthermore, Job also clarifies that he is exploring God's judgment again by wrath. Destroying the upright and the wicked together, plagues that suddenly kill all, this is the epitome of judgment by wrath things we see in the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah. Additionally, by this section, it is evident how the strong faith of Job causes him so much angst and indigestion 
Note verse 24. He says, if it is not he, who then is it? If God doesn't cause such sudden disasters or put the wicked in power, then who else? For there is no other God. There is no other power in control. Thus, it is Job's commitment and belief in God's sovereignty that gives him heartburn. For sure, God is just, but this hardly tells the whole story. Under his sovereignty, wickedness flourishes and divine scourges slaughter without distinction or prejudice. Sometimes God does judge by justice, but other times he judges by wrath, which is far more terrifying and mysterious. Next, though, Job takes up the argument from his friends about being hopeful and patient. If he just humbly waits the Lord will restore him in the end. But this, too, is not reliable, especially for Job as his life is fading away swiftly. You can see his bones through his skin. Maggots already are nibbling on him as if he's already a corpse. His life is fading faster than an Egyptian speedboat on the Nile. His days are passing quicker than an eagle dive-bombing a rainbow trout. Waiting doesn't work when wrath is so quickly closing in upon you. And so Job must do something fast. He needs to be vindicated. He must be rescued from wrath. Reconciliation with God is a must. And so what options are open for Job? Well, he lists several of them. First, Job could just forget about his painful complaint He could just pretend his pain didn't exist and put on a happy face. This was basically Bildad's counsel. He said, stop being sad, think positively, be pure, and God will fill you with joy. Job could attempt to be more of an optimist. He could fake happiness. But he says no, for the fear of his suffering would only torment him. He could pretend to be happy but God would still not hold him innocent, and Job would be condemned. The effort to be fake happy would just be labor in vain. To dress up as a happy clown does not alter the reality of Job's fears. Second, Job could try purification. He could go to a temple or down by the river, and he could wash. Scrubbing his hands with lye, bathing in soap water, surely this would work. But alas, no, for God would just dip him in the pit of death. His wrath would smear him with the filth of death so that even his clothes loathed and abhorred Job. Again, this deals with the manner of wrath. When God sees you and measures you in wrath, ritual atonement is excluded. Sacrifice is not permitted and ritual washings do nothing. Wrath only sees you in terms of death and treats you accordingly. The sacrifice and washings have no value to restore Job's agonizing plight under wrath. Therefore, Job's final option left to him is to return to the ideal of a trial for vindication. Job cannot wait. He cannot pretend to be happy. He cannot scrub himself. He must have his day in court with God to be vindicated, 
and to show that God's wrath against him is for nothing. And yet, the hurdles to a trial remain. For God is not a man like Job. Job cannot just walk up to God and say, let's go to court together. Fellow humans, you can force a trial of justice with, but you cannot do this with God. Moreover, as he says, there is no mediator between the two of them. This reflects an assumed issue with going to court with God. Typically, in a court case, you have two opposing sides and one judge, and the impartial judge is supposed to decide between the two. And yet, in Job's case, God would be both judge and a party. The Lord would be deciding between Job's case and his own case, which isn't exactly kosher. And so Job needs a mediator, one who would put his hands on both God and Job and who could decide between the two of them. But again, there is no mediator. Job can't find a go-between. What being is there that could be a judge pro tem to give a ruling between Job and God? There is none. And thus, Job is left pleading. The last two verses, he says, Just let the Lord remove his rod from me. May his terrors stop scaring me. If God could just take away his scepter of wrath and dreadful anger, then Job would be able to speak with God without fear. This is Job's chief and primary need and request. All he wants is to talk to God without being scared to death. Just a conversation without being terrified. Such is the simple and pure desire of Job. Please, God, just talk to me without your wrath. And yet it is not so. Job is anything but not afraid. He's scared of God. He's fearful of his wrath. He dreads the pain inflicted by God, and he's frantically shaking that God will never hear him. He must be vindicated in court with the Lord, but the dark shadow of wrath has hedged him in all about. The fear of judgment suffocates him, and he can barely breathe. And from this speech of Job, we see that he has a more accurate read of the world and of God than do the friends. Bildad insisted that things always go bad for the wicked. That, but, as Job points out, felons rule as kings and escape justice. And who else puts them there but God? Eliphaz inserted that God disciplines only to, uh, or disciplines to wound, only to heal. Job responds, and yet floods wipe out the godly, and they're not healed from death. Most significantly, both friends argued that God only treats people according to the retribution principle as individuals via justice. You suffer only for your sins and not for anything else. God measures out consequences only based on your behavior, and he's always open to the prayers of the humble and the pure to do them good. And yet Job protests. This is not the whole story about God. This simple retribution principle domesticates God too much. 
For the Lord creates, and the Lord also undoes creation. He marches as the divine warrior to overturn in his wrath. And when God cloaks himself in anger, then the righteous and the wicked perish together. Intercession is closed off, atonement is null, and faking it until you make it is just folly. And this is how God has been and is towards Job. Think about all ten kids dead indiscriminately, every lamb and cow stolen, rejected by society, living in a dumpster, covered with boils that testify to God's curse. The Lord has acted in merciless wrath towards Job. He's gripped in fear. He's lost his own head. He is sure he is blameless, but he doesn't know and he's unsure. And he hates his life. The only thing left to him is to be vindicated. He must have a trial with God so that he might be shown to be upright, so that the truth will come out that he is suffering for nothing, that God's wrath is against him for nothing. Thus, what we see in Job uh, is, is what we see is Job being burdened under God's law exclusively. He's smothered under the pure wrath and nothing but the wrath of God. Job shows us the transcendent terror of our God. He reveals the reality of God that when he, pro- when he approaches us without a drop of mercy or accommodation, it is terrifying. Like his friends, we too often will domesticate God only into predictable judge who always deals with us simply by our behavior. And this does happen sometimes, but other times it doesn't. The Lord also deals with his creation and his people by dark and mysterious wrath. And when God seizes us in wrath, it is a terrifying and hopeless fate, nothing but fear. Hence, in Joe's lament, we see how necessary it is for us to have a mediator. No mediator was provided for Job. But in the fullness of time, in his grace, Jesus came as the one mediator between God and man, between his wrath and us. Indeed, Job begs that God's rod would be removed so that he could be without fear. And this is precisely what Jesus did for us. By his intercession and sacrifice, Jesus appeased the wrath of God. By taking this merciless wrath upon himself, Jesus satisfied the anger of God towards us. Yes, Jesus was judged by wrath, the righteous man dying the death of criminals. But having made atonement, Jesus has removed all fear of judgment for us. The perfect love of Christ to die from us takes you from the fear of condemnation and wrath to being loved. Likewise, being vindicated in the resurrection, Jesus gives you your day in court whereby you're justified by him, by Christ's righteousness, through faith alone. 
going to trial with God is the most terrifying prospect for sinners like us. But in Christ, you stand justified and purified all of grace in him. Finally, having been justified and, and, and united to Christ, then nothing can condemn and separate us from the love of God. In Romans 8, when Paul lists all those things that cannot separate us from God's love, they all have one thing in common. Sword, famine, nakedness, distress, death, rulers, powers, and future things, these are all typical of God's curse. There are sharp expressions of wrath. Like with Job, if you suffer such hardship, it appears that you're cursed and imprisoned under wrath. But in Christ, these pains and agonies no longer tell such a story. Rather, having been justified and adopted, our tribulations are no longer condemnation. The Lord uses the losses and tragedies of life for many reasons, for many purposes, but no longer as condemnations for you in Christ. Instead, our hardships become occasions for us to trust and rest all the more in Christ and his gospel for us. Thus, may your faith flourish in Christ through all the calamities of life, to know they're not condemnations, and nothing can separate you from the love of your Savior. Also, let us praise the Lord that what Job was denied, a mediator, we have the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And he is with you always, and in him you will never be imprisoned in wrath ever again. But the Father's face remains smiling upon you forever. Amen. Let us pray.